This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 530 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Keith Dow. Now, Keith is a military veteran himself and the co-founder of Dead Reckoning Collective, a publishing company aimed at helping military authors put their books out into the world. So we discuss a host of topics from his role as a military policeman, the returning soldiers from Restrepo, his own writing publishing, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 530 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Keith Dow. Enjoy. Well, Keith, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. James, thanks so much for having me on. Beautiful. And I want to say thank you to Jessica as well. She connected me with the Deep End Fitness guys. Um, had a great conversation with um, Don and Prime. So yeah, thank you to Jessica as well for connecting us. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm currently in New Hampshire, uh, where where I started. So I've been been around the globe for a bit. Um, came back here for for a little while, and I'll uh, I'll be traveling a little bit more. So, but right now today I'm in New Hampshire, the Grand State. Brilliant. Well, that's a good kind of circle around then. So, tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah. So um, I was born in Massachusetts. Um, so. If anybody's ever been to New England, um, it, it's not a surprise that someone can be born in one state and live in another very quickly. Um, for you know, my friends in Texas, their mind is blown when uh, they drive across three states in the course of twenty minutes. Um, where you you know you hit that in the seacoast, uh, there's like thirty miles of coastline in New Hampshire, and so you can go from Massachusetts to New Hampshire to Maine all in twenty minutes um, on the same stretch of highway. Um, so I was born in Massachusetts, grew up mostly in New Hampshire, um, but obviously bounced around from, from state to state as well in the, in the, the region of New England. Um, and my, uh, my parents divorced pretty early. So my dad continued to live in Massachusetts and my mom lived in New Hampshire. Um, and I grew up a little bit in a, uh, college town uh, there. So I had exposure to all kinds of debauchery at a very young age. Uh, I was just talking with a buddy the other day about how, you know, like great and terrible it was for us. We got, you know, we drank from a fire hose socially, um, you know, all through high school. So my um, one friend who's doing his MBA right now at BU was saying that it was great because he had all the partying out of his system by the time he got to college. So because um, <laughs> he did enough of it in high school with college kids already. But um, 
Yeah, my dad, uh, my mom's an occupational therapist. Uh, my dad is a mechanical engineer. Um, and so they did, they were passionate about the jobs that they did. Um, I found that I was not especially passionate about anything that I thought would uh, translate to a career um, and just kind of bounced around. I was, I was going to hardcore and punk shows, um, you know, through my, my early to late teens uh, into my twenties and uh, toured a little bit with a band um, just really didn't have any direction. You know, when it came to graduating high school, when everybody was getting accepted to colleges uh, I realized that I was at some point I missed the boat to apply to colleges cause no one had talked to me about it. Um, so I was just kind of trying to figure out what I, what to do. So I moved to Boston for a little bit, uh, moved back to New Hampshire, moved back to Boston, toured with a band, kind of roamed the country a little, um, worked odd jobs and stuff. Um, and then eventually in two, I graduated high school in 2005. So it was about a three-year span, um, 2008, uh, enlisted in the Army. Brilliant. Well, you talked about the, the hardcore, and um, I think the hip, I heard you talking about hip-hop as well. So going back, um, yeah, my parents divorced, but I was 18 when it happened, so I was a little older. Um, yeah, which isn't any easier, I don't think. No, no, it, it's it's terrible regardless, you know, because when you get 18, yeah. you're like, oh, goodness, you know, all my friends' parents are divorced and we made it. Nah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just because you're 18 didn't change anything and then you kind of unravel the childhood that you thought you had versus the childhood you actually had and you know it's an interesting journey as well um but did that factor into you leaning towards graffiti you know hardcore i mean not that those are bad outlets but you know it, it's a more of a rebellious type thing yeah i mean i think so i think um i think a general sense of um not belonging with, you know, the norm or, you know, the people that you are expected to belong with, um, always has an impact on that kind of thing. Um, but I, I mean, I do, I also just remember being drawn to subcultures in general. Um, you know, I remember seeing, seeing graffiti on like overpasses and stuff, uh, all over, all over new England as a kid and thinking about like, you know, how, how did that happen? Who did that? How, you know, how did they get there? What did they do? Uh, what are the, what are the steps? Um, and then, I mean, in terms of hardcore, like I, I was, it was not convenient for me. Um, I think one of the only shows that I ever attended that was like less than an hour from my house before like 2003, uh, was a fluke. Um, it was like, it, it was like Bane reached the sky, guns up, break it up. And like a couple other bands, the limit, um, and who, you know, I have friends in, in all of those bands now and they, um, but it was a fluke that, you know, UNH Durham, New Hampshire did not have a hardcore scene. It just happened to be there. Um, it was just a space that was available. So other than that, I was, you know, bumming rides, uh, like an hour to, to three hours, uh, all over New England, um, sometimes New York to different shows and stuff throughout my, my adolescence, because I found a sense of belonging in that scene. Now, with um, obviously what you're doing now, you know, being being in the publishing space, you know, there's obviously a a draw to literature. Way back then, were there elements of the lyrics in hardcore, the lyrics in hip hop that drew you in oh, into literature? Yeah, I mean, just just that that spoke to you, you know, the the written oh, for word. Sure. I think, I mean, academically, I think my writing was the only thing that ever got positive feedback. Um, I was, I, I'm still not a numbers guy. Um, 
so, you know, math class never went well. Um, science didn't do it for me. Uh, I, I enjoyed uh, history and stuff, but, you know, the academic side, which, you know, now public education has changed a little bit where they're not, they're, they're more uh, critical of events rather than just memorizing dates. Um, you know, that really didn't do it for me either. Um, so I think creative writing was really like the one the one outlet in school that I had that also got some positive feedback from, um, you know, from teachers and stuff. Um, and I actually in, it was like eighth grade. Um, I got a scholarship to attend a, like a week long writing scholarship at, uh, or workshop at, uh, Bates college in Maine. Um, and that was great. It was like my first and it, but it still really didn't stick that I could do something like that. Um, you know, long-term, it was still, still very much just, you know, a school field trip for me. It didn't, didn't click that. Like I could do that as an adult, I could do that, um, you know, even as a career. So now what about sports when you were school age, what were you playing? I didn't play anything. I didn't play a single sport. Uh, I can't participate in these conversations at like social gatherings and stuff. When people ask me, <laughs> um, I, I continue to be a misfit. Um, when, when I go over, like I went, actually went to a buddy's house, uh, yesterday to watch the Patriots game and like, I'll watch it if it's on, but we didn't have a football team in high school. Um, my dad wasn't within arm's reach. So like, you know, he, we spent time together. Um, but he also wasn't a huge football guy. And so football wasn't a part of my life, like, which always blows, blows people's minds, you know, especially if I'm talking to people from outside the U S they're like, Oh, like, you don't watch football like you're from America. Like, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Sorry. Um, and so I, I played nothing, um, which I, I have talked about a lot. Like, you know, when, when you talk about like the aggressive outlet that, that happens in the hardcore scene and stuff, I think that had a lot to do with, um, the way that I was drawn toward that as well. Um, I didn't, I didn't have any kind of, I mean, we really, we had lacrosse and some other sports, but I didn't play them. But even if I did, you know, would it have been enough for what I was doing? So I was a knucklehead and I did knucklehead stuff instead of anything constructive, like, you know, playing a team sport that, that may have had a little bit of contact that may have gotten that out. Um, I just didn't have anybody driving me towards that. So I was driven towards what I was into. Yeah. No, it's funny you say that because I grew up in England and I didn't have a football team, which is like heresy yeah. over there. And, you know, you could see them just like taking my man card and then I'd tell them, well, you know, I like combat sports. Oh, okay. And then my man card was given back. <laughs> you know, it's funny how, yeah, you're, you're kind of, you're ranked based on, you know, if you can name all the teams, you know, who was in the Super Bowl in 1926 or I don't know who was the one, the last one, you know. <laughs> So I can I can totally relate to that. Um, when well, you say when you say football in England, like you mean soccer, you soccer, yeah, soccer real football with your feet. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I would that take is, my feet. That, those and are I would, parallels for sure. Absolutely. So I can completely relate. But I would take my foot and put it on someone's head, and you know that was a different kind of football. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, no. But it is funny. There's that social stigma, like oh, that's what a man is. You know, he watches football and you know has a team yeah. and all that stuff. Or maybe he's just out. You know playing music well you know whatever. and again i'm not a numbers guy like you know and that's that's something i always have trouble with like sports fans is that uh these dudes who like can't remember a grocery list will you know inevitably like know their whole team's stats and i'm like why why do you know that like what 
and, you know, and all the power to you, like your passions are your passions, your hobbies are your hobbies, interests, whatever. Cool. But like for me, I can't dedicate that brain space to something that affects me. Not at all. So, um, yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. It's interesting actually, because I've had the observation this last, you know, year and a half or so, like if we'd put the effort in, for example, the adoration for a football team and I get it, you know, it's entertainment. I totally get it. But if we put sure. that in mentorship, if we put that in, you know, being kind and compassionate in your community, if you put that in your own physical fitness, you change mm-hmm. the world. But I think that, you know, sadly, even entertainment, even sports has been used as a kind of distraction in some areas to take people yeah. away from the actual things that really matter in the world, which is our own health and our own security. Yeah, I mean, look how look how much you know professional athletics has been um, prioritized over other things, you know. And it's yeah, money makes the world go round. We get it, um, so it hasn't been surprising. But it, at the same time, it's been surprising, like how much it has been, how much effort has been into, you know, getting these leagues back up and running uh, post pandemic and stuff, mid pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, you know, and again, the school age, you're. In the hardcore scene, you're kind of not driven by the college route. Were there any kind of dream careers that you were thinking about then? Um, not, not really. Um, I had considered the trades, and I really just because at that time I was uh, surrounded by people who who were doing that. You know, I had I had lots of um, blue collar friends um, who were picking up trades and making solid money. So I was like, well, maybe that, but I really couldn't nail anything down. I really liked, um, carpentry and I did that, uh, you know, as, as an odd job for a little bit, worked with a buddy's dad, did some stuff with my dad. Um, but nothing really stuck. Um, and so prior, like, you know, prior to joining the army, I had, uh, I was working an interesting, uh, combo of jobs. I was, um, I was a preschool, like a, I was working at a preschool, um, as a one-on-one for a child who was in the process of being placed on the, um, uh, the spectrum. Um, and then I was, and so I was doing that five days a week and then, um, probably like at least four, four to five nights a week. Um, I was bouncing at a, a bar in the college town where I drew, where I grew up. So, um, definitely like, there, there were one or two times where I walked in with like a little bit of a shiner, like, and, and it wasn't like well received by like the staff at the, uh, the preschool, but, um, but I always had a good story. So, um, yeah. And I, you know, and I was working hard and I was working, I mean, bouncing at a bar, like is not really like a long game, but, um, you know, in terms of like working at the preschool, like there, I could have gone, several different career routes with it. I just wasn't, my heart wasn't in it. Um, and so when I had two friends, uh, get back from the military and I worked with several others, uh, at the bar, you know, Marine reservists and stuff who had taken a year off from school to, to go to Fallujah and, and stuff. Um, I was, I was like, well, maybe that's an option. Cause I feel like I'm not contributing anything, you know? Um, and then this, this is a whole other conversation, like, which still like blows my mind, but, um, you know, the anti-establishment kid goes, goes full establishment, um, which is this whole, whole phenomenon that I'm, I'm always interested to hear people's perspective on, but, um, but yeah, so that's what I did. Um, it was 2008, uh, I enlisted and my, my buddy and I actually, we were living together at the time and we enlisted together. 
Um, and then we didn't see each other for like seven years because we were like our leave times just never matched up. So, well, I want to get to your enlistment in a second. That's always a fascinating story. Even for, you know, for a civilian, I've heard such a spectrum now from amazing to absolute dog shit and everything in between. <laughs> but back yeah. to your paradox for a second. So you were teaching, you know, a, um, a special needs child during the day and then bouncing in a college town bar in the evening. Um, what what was that like as far as switching on and off? I mean, obviously, those are two very separate things. But I mean, I, I can, for example, I do stunts on the side. So I can remember, you know, working some horrific traffic accident and then fast forward a few hours and I'm in costume prancing around a stage pretending to get punched, you know. And it was, there were times yeah. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, it was, you, you hadn't concluded one before the other had started. So how, how were you able to, to go from compassionate, kind teacher to, intimidating presence that would be a deterrent to a drunk asshole, for example? I mean, I think it's all interactions with people, right? You're And you're always going to deal with people that you don't like. Um, but, but interacting with people, like, I don't think, um, I don't know that I could just be a craftsman that worked in a shop solo and never, never did client work or anything like that. I understand how people do it, but I, I don't think I, I could do that. I have to be doing, um, it became clear. I, I didn't know what it was then. I just knew what I liked and I couldn't formulate that into, you know, any kind of reasonable thought. But like I knew, um, that whatever I, I was doing and again, without being able to actually articulate this, I knew that I wanted to do something sort service oriented and I knew that I wanted to work with people. Um, so I think that's probably the common theme with the two of those, how I switched on and off. I don't know. I think I was just so tired by the time I got to work at the preschool that, um, that I was mellow. And by the time I was done with a work day and going into the bar, I was probably at the, the level of, of irritability that I needed to be that, uh, that I could do whatever needed to be done at the time. So interesting. Well, just as one, one more, you know, question on that topic, yeah. What were you, what were some of the things that you found worked connecting with this child? Um, so his his case um, was really uh, scary if you're a parent um, because he actually just uh, went nonverbal. Um, he was I can't remember what he he was maybe two um, and he just stopped like forming sounds um, like, you know, he was forming words and stuff. And at one point it just stopped. It was like somebody flicked a light switch and all he would do was run back and forth. Um, so I was present for all his speech therapy sessions, um, did things like that. Um, but I mean, and, and I did, they sent me to workshops and stuff like that too. Um, so, and I mean, that was 2008, like 2007, 2008. So I would imagine that the game has changed considerably and I'm not uh, up on it to, to not sound super obtuse, but, um, but there were, I mean, you know, listening to the professionals that they had assigned to him and communicating with his parents and stuff like that. Um, my hat's off to anybody that works in that industry because it's just, um, it, it is draining for sure. Um, you know, it's difficult to see, uh, see a family member not be able to integrate into society the way that you expected them to. So there's a whole, there's always a whole dynamic, um, in addition to just trying to get that person who, you know, if it's a child or an adult to like mesh with society, but there's also, 
trying to get their family members to get on board sometimes too, which is something that people don't, don't always consider. You know, that was like, that was one of the things that like broke my heart, uh, with the pandemic is just thinking about that. Um, you know, where these, these kids were, uh, getting one-on-one assistance at school and then they had to go home full time. And some, like some parents are used to it. Some parents are pretty hands off with it. So just understanding that what that adjustment was probably like um, was was heartbreaking. Yeah, I've, I've heard actually from the you know, responder population that the number of kind of domestic incidents in, increased, and sadly, yeah. a lot of the reported um, abuse decreased because you know one of the the women I had on the show is from an amazing center we have in town where if kids are abused, if it is reported, if there's an outcry, that's where they go. And so a lot of the outcries are actually through the schools from the teachers. Well, these kids are all homeschooled. So some of these vulnerable, you know, children, they just, they weren't able to report, which is, you know, heartbreaking when you think about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, school is a savior for some kids. It's, you know, that's where they get their square meals. That's where they get, or the closest thing to it. Um, It's where they get any kind of validation, any kind of positive feedback. So, um, we can rag on the public education system all we want, but you know, when that's the best you got, that's the best you got. So, yeah, we got good people and I think we just need to improve the, the system sure. itself. Yeah. Right. Well then moving forward, then your enlistment story. Um, I think the best one I've heard by far is Pat McNamara, who, um, was a Delta operator. His dad actually sent a lawyer with him to his enlistment. <laughs> Fucking amazing. Anyone listening now, if they heard the show for a while, I mean, do that because they, I think they tried to kind of, you know, snow him and they was like, no, no, I see this clause here. And then he ended up, you know, making sure he, he took the path that he wanted. Um, it sounded like the interview I heard with you, that wasn't the case with you. So kind of what was your experience? You know, firstly, what, what made you finally pull the trigger on that? And then tell me your, uh, your enlistment experience. Um, well, I mean, it wasn't like the worst, but definitely wasn't great. Uh, the, I don't have a horror story for sure. I would not call it a horror story, but, um, had I had the internet been where it is today, then I probably would have done things differently because I would have known. Um, cause I went into MEPS in Portland, Maine, um, and they offered me a $40,000 bonus for, uh, to be an MP. And I didn't really understand what that meant. My recruiter was like, well, you'll get to deploy and do, you know, stuff. And then you'll get to do um, law enforcement stuff. He was like, but they're not even doing law enforcement stuff because I had no interest. But I was like, oh, well, it'd give me like, you know, he, he was like the way the way he pitched it. He was like, you know, security industry and stuff. It'll get you way more schools that will, you know, schools and, and different skill sets that will uh, make your make you more competitive in the job field when you get out. Um, cause I had no, I didn't know that, uh, I guess I didn't really consider like where generals came from and sergeant majors and stuff, uh, because I didn't consider making a career out of the military at that point. I didn't, I didn't realize that people did that. I thought that you just did your initial enlistment and then got out. And then when I went in, obviously the retention game got, got laid down heavy, like every step of the way, you know, I'll reenlist like, man, like we're, we're just privates, like in, we're in processing, like calm down. Um, we got five more years. And, um, so, so I took a, I took a bonus for an MP contract. Um, and like I said, it wasn't, I mean, 
not a horror story. I just would have done it different because I really I did not enjoy uh, being an MP. But I also recognize, you know, I'm a big I'm a big fan of, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I recognize that if I hadn't taken that job, I may not have met the people that I met and, you know, formed the relationships that I did. Um, Tyler and I met while I was an MP uh, while he was serving as a medic in the 173rd. So if I hadn't been an MP in that tiny little MP detachment, which is like 40 people, um, you know, for quite a large base, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have met. Um, so that's, that's definitely not lost on me, but I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, I didn't do a second enlistment. I just did my five years and then I ended up getting out. All right. Well, you found yourself deployed first. Was that right? In, in Iraq? Yeah, I, I deployed to uh, the Baghdad area in 2009 to 2010. Okay. So one thing I like to ask all of our veterans that, you know, have been deployed into combat zones. And I'm, you know, obviously preaching to the choir because you're in the literary space, literary space. But, um, we get a very polarizing view of war and, you know, the civilian population mm-hmm. do, you know, either, and I, I use this analogy every time, either kind of kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're a bunch of baby killers. And, you know, we don't really hear the perspective of the soldier, of the Marine, of the airman. Um, so, I like to ask kind of, excuse me, two sides of the coin. The first one was, you know, most people have come from rural wherever, suburban wherever, and then now they're in the Middle East, you know, holding a weapon. Regardless of the politics that sent you there, was there a moment where you realized, okay, there are some atrocities being done to the Iraqi people, to, you know, the the, the, the U.S. soldiers, whatever it was, regardless of why I was sent here, I can see that there is some, you know, some bad people that need to be stopped. Um, I mean, I think most people understand the job, the task that's in front of them. Um, and that's, that's what I, that's what I saw. That's what I, I, I was dealing with. Um, I mean, I don't think I saw anything that was terrible, but I think that also could have been like our mission set, you know, by the time I was there, like 2009 to 2010, we were, um, doing a lot of convoy security, uh, breaking down fobs. We were doing, um, a lot of like tactical checkpoints. Um, we, you know, we didn't, and and especially like given, given the theater, you know, when you talk about the differences between Iraq and Afghanistan, like, you know, we weren't seeing, um, the stuff that I've, I've talked to my friends, uh, who went to Afghanistan. We weren't seeing that kind of stuff. We weren't seeing like gross human rights violations. Um, we got to see, uh, you know, the first solid election, um, their first, you know, their first democratic election. Um, and, and assist with security operations with that. We got to see, um, some, some really cool stuff. Um, and so I don't think at any point, I think I also knew I was 21 when I enlisted, you know, so I, I don't, I didn't have any, um, any false ideas about, um, the, the validity behind the war. Um, you know, I, I smell bullshit, uh, in the invasion of Iraq at the, you know, the simultaneous invasion of Iraq at the same time as, as Afghanistan. Um, I, but I also kind of looked at, I, I've, I've compared the, the global war on terror to a bar fight. You know, if you are in a group at a bar and your friend does something stupid that gets everybody in a fight, do you step back? 
or do you, you know, figure it out later? Like, do you beat the shit out of your friend later for, for being a dummy, but you deal with the problem at hand first. And that's kind of how I, I, I looked at it. So, I mean, gross human, human rights violations. No, I didn't, I didn't see anything that like really opened my eyes. Um, because I think I, like, I don't think I was so naive that, that I didn't realize that there were, there were things going on anyway. Um, you know, things, things were done throughout the last 20 years that were necessary and things were done in the last 20 years that probably created more problems than not. But, um, it's 20 years. We've got a whole other century to dissect it and figure out what we did really wrong and, you know, what good came of it. Absolutely. Well, speaking of good, the other side of the coin, because I mean, it's important that we have both lenses. What about moments of compassion and kindness amongst, you know, what you saw was the tail end of, of a combat? Um, yeah, I mean, we, I got to see my company, uh, had deployed to Bakuba, uh, the year before. Um, and I got to see those guys, uh, get a bit of closure. They lost, they lost four, um, in like two months. Um, and so I got to see those guys get a little bit of closure because we, you know, in addition to all our other, uh, mission sets, we got to help with the drawdown. Um, you know, and people, people had feelings about the drawdown in Iraq then. Um, but I think it was definitely done a bit better than, than Afghanistan. Um, you know, and again, like we were just talking about it, like I'm, I'm not a, a strategist, I'm whatever. Um, but part of our mission set was, you know, going to different sites and breaking stuff down and taking stuff, um, that, that wasn't supposed to be left there, things like that. And just them being able to see that I think gave them a little bit of closure, um, whether or not ground was given to whoever, um, that was a cool thing to see. Um, and then I think just the, the camaraderie of it, right? Like, um, different creative endeavors, like in the downtime, different, um, different things like that, forming little, little relationships with interpreters and, and like local nationals that were, that were working with us and stuff. Um, I guess those were good parts too. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that perspective. I mean, that's it. You know, everyone has a different lens and that's the problem. We don't see, you know, this Marine here, this soldier here, we just get the blanket, you know, uh, left or right, you know, and this is, you know, there were men and women on the ground that had every single person had a different experience. Um, so you ended up, um, transitioning more into the military priests, um, role. And I kind of heard you hint in one of the other interviews, you know, that you did see. So, you know, the, the dark side of, of some individuals within the military. Now, you know, I think in the police and the fire and military, we're very good at protecting our own when they're falsely accused. And, you know, and like law enforcement today for a perfect example, you know, amazing, amazing men and women overall sacrificing their lives, leaving their family behind, you know, and getting all tarred with the same brush. But there are rotten apples. So, you know, what were, what were some of the things that you encountered of those, you know, minority individuals that, that were violating the uniform that they were wearing? I mean, the, a lot of people are already aware of the numbers of, you know, domestic violence and sexual assault within the military, um, and child abuse, like those things. And those things are super common, um, no matter what military base you go to. And sometimes, sometimes I think it's because of, uh, things that service members are you know, having difficulty coping with. And sometimes I think it's because that they were assholes before, um, and that the military just happens to, to draw on them, um, or take them in. 
So, but you, you for sure see a lot of that and that's, um, that's difficult. Um, yeah. Now, is there, we in, in the, in the fire and the police, sometimes our you know, unions really, I mean, basically protect some of the shit bags that are in the uniform, you know, much to the, the disgust uh, of yeah. most of the people in there, but they're, they're kind of protected because they're, you know, police officer, firefighter, whatever it is. And that shouldn't be, you know, we have good people. Like I said, we should make sure that we remove the bad members of our profession. Um, was there an element of, was there an uphill battle dealing with these people that you were encountering or, or uh, you know, from the other side of the coin, was it dealt with very fair? Was it very easy for an MP to, to follow the, the lawful route that they should? I mean, I think when you're talking about the justice system, when you're t- any justice system, um, fair is is a off limits word. Um, you know, nothing's fair. Um, and from you know, from what I saw, I saw several different phases of of the the army. Um, you know, by the time I was getting ready to get out in 2013. Um, we were drawing down, like they were trying to trim the fat off of the force. So any kind of misconduct, see ya. Um, so, you know, in that, and then, you know, if you're, if you're just swinging with a big sword, it's whatever. But like, if you're actually taking the time to look at it, you know, that means that a guy who did six deployments, um, and was, uh, you know, heavily engaged in combat who got back so quickly every time and didn't actually get the proper time to reset, didn't get the proper care, um, or the instruction to care for himself. Uh, that means, you know, that guy who gets one DUI or, um, you know, reacts poorly to an argument with, with his wife or, or whatever it may be, um, is kicked out. And, and kicked out in every sense of the word, you know, because when you get an other than honorable discharge, which m- many of these, these guys did, that also affects your VA benefits and stuff like that. So it, it affects your access to care. Um, you know, that's when I think of fair, um, that's, that's why it really doesn't come to mind when I, when I look at, especially the military justice system. Um, because then you also, you know, if it's a, if it's like a, a senior officer, that, same situation may not go the same way and they may not have done as many, as many things as, as that lower enlisted guy did. So, um, that's, I mean, that, and that's difficult to see. That's, um, that was, that was really for me, that was the hard part of the, that, that side of the job. Um, Iraq was easy in comparison. Um, you know, having to, to watch that over and over again, having to see, um, men and women like suffering from substance abuse, um, and different mental health issues, because this was, I mean, it's not that long ago, but it was long enough that like, these were not issues that were actually been giving, um, being given proper attention. So they had no issue kicking, kicking a dude out and leaving him with no care, leaving him with no career, leaving him with no next move, you know? Um, and that was difficult to see. And I saw it, I saw that a lot. 
Yeah, well, it's an important perspective for us to hear. And I think even with some of the gray area things we saw in law enforcement, you know, no one talks about the, how much training did they have, the, you know, how much sleep have they had? Have they been forced to stay another shift? You know, how many, you know, years in a busy side of town have they done? And then that absolutely has to be factored in. They've got a, a lawyer in LA coming on and she defends responders that have done, you know, done things that are wrong. But a part of the defense is, you know, their career and what have they seen and what they've done and, you know, how have they, you know, and if that's not being brought in, whether it's in the military or the first responder space, then you're missing a big part of the the puzzle and you're just blaming the individual solely, which you see, I think, especially in the law enforcement space at the moment. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, it's the organization that puts them in that position. Like it doesn't matter where, what side of the corn you fall on, um, if you can't acknowledge that like law enforcement is like a, a shit job, I mean, at least you guys, like you guys get to nap and stuff and like eat and like, wait, <laughs> like work to me. but like, you know, um, like being a cop is like not a cool job. Like it, that sucks. Like most of the time, like it's not, it's, it, it is a thankless job. Um, so if you, but no matter, again, no matter how you, you fall on it, like I've met dirtbag cops and, I'm like, even those guys, I'm like, yeah, like I, I can see parts of what pushed them to this, you know, um, there was no incentive for them to be good. So they were set up to fail, you know, for failure to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that you ultimately found yourself and please correct me if I'm wrong. You, you mentioned in the interview, the, the men from Restrepo. That, that kind of group of, of the military. I, I had um, Sebastian Junger on a couple of times. He did, made the film and, you know, wrote, as you know, as a writer, it was incredible. Um, and, you know, the, the level of combat that those men saw was incredible. So, again, you yeah. mentioned about people with, you know, six tours. Um, you moved to Italy, is that right? Is that where they were kind of being demobbed? Yeah, so uh, Caserma Ederly, uh was the base. I think there's another another base close by um, now. But Caserma Ederly was like probably the size of like four football fields as a base. Um, so it was not not big um, when you're talking about an airborne infantry brigade. Um, and I was stationed there from 2011 to 2013. Um, and that was so there were like some of some of the action, the, the guys that were actually in that documentary uh, were still trickling in and out. Um, and but I mean, historically, like the 173rd had some of like the, the worst deployments, you know, do more with less um, deployments than uh, than anyone in the in the GWAT, um, you know, really, really shitty areas, um, you know, high casualty rates and you, everyone that lived in or around those bases, um, for sure saw the aftershock of that. Yeah. So what were you seeing with the the men coming back? And I mean this from a you know kindness and compassion element. You've got these these children, these boys that are sent off, you know, find themselves in this war zone, literally on, on a on a perched on a rock in the middle of a foreign country, trying you know, people trying to murder them day in, day out. Um, you know, what doesn't have to be through MP MP's eyes, but what were you seeing of these 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 boys when they were coming back well i mean i hung out with uh a lot of a lot more guys from the 173rd than i did with um with my own unit um and so you know a lot of the friends that i made uh had also come from you know other other airborne infantry units within the army um and then so 
I mean, I think uh, that was it. It was transition issues. You know, the ones, the ones that I had met that had, had done stuff by the time I got there. Um, I think it was the last, the, the deployment that Tyler went on, I believe was there was the 173rd's last Afghanistan rotation, um, of the war. And then they shifted their mission to, uh, to the, the European stuff, the, the Ukraine, um, efforts and, and all of that. Um, but I mean, it was difficult. It was, uh, because then, then you talk about cultural things too, right? Um, if sometimes, sometimes there, there were the same people at those units for like quite some time. Um, so then you're talking about like embedded habits and, and things like that and, um, and expectations of, uh, the way things go. The area itself is not great for <laughs> men who engage in high risk behavior, uh, as a coping mechanism because there are, um, criminal elements and drugs and prostitution and all kinds of like, it, like literally every vice that you could imagine is right outside the walking gate of that base. So there, there was a lot of, uh, issues with that as well. Um, and they just, I mean, that's what you do. Any, anybody you talk to in the military, like that works, um, that that's what you do. You have a Monday through Friday, pretty much, uh, give or take, mostly take, uh, and then you have a weekend and like, what do you do on that weekend? Like you, you binge drink and you try to bang everything with legs and you like that, that is, that is the general consensus of like most, most service members, especially, um, in combat arms. And so like, it was not, um, you know, given, given the circumstances, it was a horrible setting. Like, and you, you can ask any command, like it was just a nightmare, uh, for any kind of disciplinary action as well, because like it was every weekend there was, you know, we joke now about these safety briefs and stuff, but like it is the 173rd I'm certain is where like most of the, the safety briefs came from. Beautiful. Well, I mean, thank you for that perspective. I'm sure a lot of people have listened, I mean, excuse me, have uh, seen the films and, um, you know, it was such a powerful perspective of the combat, but you saw, and Sebastian talked about this too. It was really when they came back to Italy and they were, you know, taken from their tribe, taken from their, their team that Mm -hmm. they started to struggle. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's like, it's interesting too, because it's, um, it's not only just that it's like, you're surrounded by like bad elements and stuff, but you're also like, you're not in the U S right. So you go from a foreign land back to a foreign land. Like Italy is still not your home. It's still not America. It's still not, um, you know, I think Germany is a little bit different, but Italy is like, you, you are very isolated. There aren't a lot of other bases around. Um, Italians are, uh, in my experience, like we're, we're always a little bit colder. And I think that's also cause we're like really shitty tourists. Um, we're not, we're not very good guests a lot of the times. Um, but I always thought that was, that was interesting. Um, you know, especially for some of these like 18 year old guys who also had 18 year old wives who, you know, they moved there and then deployed. And then it's like, now you have no community, you know, and, or, or your community is, is that, and that's it. Cause you know, there's a language barrier, um, and, and a long ass flight, uh, back to, back to the U S. So, um, so yeah, I mean, when you're talking about the tribe mentality and stuff that, that for sure played it into it, uh, with the 173rd in particular, because they are, it, it is, 
it is isolated. You know, you are literally going, like I said, from, from a foreign land to a foreign land. Um, and the, the contrast is, is light. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate perspective. Like I said, um, so you're talking about flying home. So at what point did you realize that you weren't going to reenlist and, and then tell me about your, your personal transition experience? Um, it was toward the end of my, my contract. I had, I had considered some options. Um, uh, I, and I knew that if I was going to stay in, I was going to do a different job and all of the other jobs that I wanted to do, uh, to put in like a reclass packet. Um, I needed more time. So I was like, well, that answers that question. You know, I'm not going to do it, uh, if it's not a guarantee and I'm not going to reenlist, you know, for a job or a school or whatever. So, um, and so I, I ended up getting out, um, I was married and moved to Ontario, um, which made things again, like, you know, like I was just saying, you know, foreign land, foreign land, um, made a lot of things a lot harder for me. Um, and I did, uh, start my undergrad, um, pretty shortly after I got out, um, which I found helped me a lot, uh, for a lot of, a lot of people talk about post-service education being really difficult. Um, and it was cause I, I had been a horrible high school student and, um, I found that the structure like involved in school was great. And I was so, I was still like, I was definitely ready to be out of the military at that point, but I was also still so like, um, you know, structured and regulated that I, fit in very well, like among like professors who were tired of seeing kids show up in sweatpants and like not show up at all or whatever. So, uh, a little bit went a really, really long way. Um, and I just found that, um, I was good at it. You know, the first, first semester I made, um, honor roll cause I, I maintained above an 80 and I was like, Oh shit, well I'm going to try and do that the next semester. And then I ended up like graduating with honors, uh, with my bachelor's. So, um, just little things like that um, were, were incentives that like you may not have received in the military. Um, you know, you like, it's, it's pretty easy to feel like great when you get treated like shit for five years. Um, <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So when, what was your, um, major in? Uh, I did a bachelor of human services. So, which was kind of a broad, a uh, broad degree, and then later on brought me to a uh, master of social work, which I'm in the process of completing right now. Okay. And then what made you choose that route? Uh, I didn't want to be a cop, so, <laughs> <laughs> but I still wanted to do, um, you know, I figured uh, because I already had an undergrad, um, I, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to go into nursing. Um, you know, trauma nursing sounded cool, um, but I, I really didn't want to do a second bachelor's degree. Um and so I looked into, uh, different clinical programs and social work had always kind of stuck out to me. Um, you know, I, I worked at a hospital for a little bit and, uh, we did about as much, um, talking, you know, and deescalating as we did scrapping. And, but I definitely, uh, you know, especially like at, at my age, um, and like the age my body feels most days, uh, I definitely like talking more than fighting. Um, and so I looked into, uh, the master social work program, several of them, and like ended up finding one, uh, that was all online. 
Um, and I was able to kind of complete at my own pace. So, uh, so I started that, uh, 2019, I think, and is, is in progress right now. Beautiful. Well, you had talked about, you know, middle school level, you know, having this kind of flair for writing at what point up to where we're, we are right now, did you fall in love with literature? And then how was that, you know, what was that road to dead reckoning collective? Um, I think, my my love for literature and, and like wordsmithing in general for sure came from an even blend of positive reinforcement from English teachers and rap music. Uh, so, you know, and, and I've always been drawn to stories. I think that's still with social work. Um, that's, you know, that's part of what draws me to the, that field as well. Um, but Tyler and I started um, started a blog shortly after we both got out of the military and you know we started continuing to look at different ways that we could build on it um and eventually that came to publishing um because we saw a need for it we saw uh lots of military nonfiction, but we didn't see a lot of um authors who were also veterans that you know were telling different stories so you know, we have an interest in, in telling military stories, but we also have an interest in, um, in helping veterans who are authors, you know, not necessarily like with military stories, tell the stories that they want to tell, um, or tell them in a, in a way that a major publisher, uh, may not look at them, um, or deal with them in a way that a major publisher would not deal with them. Um, you know, we can, we can see things because we have the experiences that we do because we have the network that we do. Um, we are, the acquisition side and the editorial side, we're, we're going to have, you know, more, more patience and more perspective than, than one of the, the bigger houses is. So it's a, it's been a really cool experience being able to, you know, put out the the books that we have. So you're talking about, you know, some of the problems of the bigger publishers. I wrote a book last year and ended up publishing through Amazon in the end. Um, and I got, you know, listened to a whole bunch of my friends, uh, Jason Casper, who's a green beret, who's a, um, fiction writer now. Um, uh, some some other people but you know and it was it was a an interesting kind of equation kind of figuring out the pros and cons and obviously the big con is you know it's not on any bookshelf <laughs> anywhere in the world it's just online yeah. um so talk to me about the challenges of um you know a, a a new wannabe writer and then what are the pros and cons of publishing versus self-publishing versus finding a you know a large you know international publisher I mean, it's 2021. Like if you want to publish a book, you, I, I don't have to tell you, you can publish a book. Um, but like, I don't know what your sales have been like, you know, I don't know what your, your marketing approach to it was. I don't know if you had anybody help you with, uh, cover design. I don't know if you, you know, how you formatted the book. Um, these are all things that people tend to not think about. And if they say like, yeah, I can do that. Like a lot of the time it doesn't come out great. Um, which is unfortunate because we've seen a lot of, a lot of people, uh, go that route and do it and just wing it, you know, or try to do it the best that they can. And they have a great story. It just needed not, you know, even if you're looking past aesthetics, if you're looking past like the margins, um, you know, the cover design, things like that, uh, where things get a little bit wonky, um, the story itself, you know, every, every book needs an editor. You need to have someone edit it. And I'm not talking about, um, me sending you something in a PDF via email and you sending it back to me and saying like, Oh man, looks good. Like 
that's not helpful. I want you to tell me what sucks because there's something for sure, um, like hurt my feelings because nothing is just good on the first draft. So we, you know, we offer editorial services. We offer, you know, we, we do most of our design in house. Um, there's only, only a couple things that we've outsourced for pretty specific reasons. Um, we are also, you know, actively seeking it out. We have lots of submissions, but we're, we're also, you know, we do find, um, you know, we find different authors and, and otherwise like major publishers might not. Hey. Um, so probably the postman. Um, so there's, I mean, like I said, if you want to publish a book, you can publish a book for sure. Um, how that publishing process is going to go and, and what you're going to be able to do for yourself versus what, like what us and our network are going to be able to do is, is different. Um, you know, the other advantage that we have that I don't think any other publisher really does um, with the exception of, of some small presses who, you know, follow the same thing is we we're building a community. So I don't, um, if somebody asks me like what publisher puts out my favorite books, I'm not like, Oh, random house, like is the best, like random house puts out great book. Like, I don't care, like whatever. But when we put out books, the same people tend to buy them because they know what goes into it and they know, you know, they know our, our dedication to it. Um, and then they know that they're, they're going to get a great book, even if it's in a genre that they're not huge on. Um, you know, we've got infantry guys reading poetry. So what, what does that tell you? Um, there, there is, there is something to be said about the community that we've, we've have built with, you know, with the community that we have. Um, and you know, on that side, we're doing, doing other things. Also, we, uh, we're just wrapping up right now. Um, I don't know when this will air, but like it's September 20th. We're just in the, the final weeks of our, uh, our first online workshop. Um, and when I say first, like, I mean, we have, we have more ready to go and, and we're doing that. So, um, we not only want to put out books, but we want to make great writers. We want to make people who have good stories, great writers, um, and people who just want to tell other stories, um, you know, give them the ability to do it effectively. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been interesting for me because I had to, I did do what you said, but it was again with some great mentorship. I mean, I, I really pulled my resources, but I paid for an English, um, editor tore me apart never once said it was a good book <laughs> just gave me lots of red but like you said she was brutal that's what i needed i paid for a cover art i had a concept but i got someone to do it professionally um but you know it would have been great to have all that in in one place now um are you still doing purely veteran authors at the moment yeah we only deal with veteran authors um but the uh the workshops and stuff that is where we're we're trying to do you know part of our mission is to to bridge, uh, the civilian military divide. So, um, part of what we are doing with the workshops is allowing, um, civilian participants, which is really cool because you get, you know, you get a, a pretty wide variety, but it's one thing that we're able to do. Um, you know, and the other way that we, we br try to bridge that gap is to, um, create literature that speaks to everyone, not just veterans. Um, but it offers that, veteran perspective in whatever way it comes to to you know the general public as well yeah well i think that's Im important i heard you talking about that with with the other podcasts as well um and it reminded me of when i wrote as well it was a twofold thing so each each of my chapters has got like a wellness theme you know as a takeaway from each one it starts with a story from my career and then goes on but it's it's a 
you know, two-sided mirror, if you like, because one, hopefully my population, my profession, you know, and police and EMS and everyone else will kind of re- read it through a responder's eyes and go, okay, well, I can see this in myself. You know, this, this is, you know, my sleep, my injuries, whatever it is. But my my goal as well from the other side of the mirror is that the civilian will read it and go, I had no idea this is what responders went through. I thought they just sat around, took naps and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, and it's the same as I asked the, the question earlier. You know, we, we do get a very two-dimensional perspective of the military. Oh, that's those guys over in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, thank you for your service. Um, so what are some of the powerful voices that have emerged through some of your authors? Man, um, you know, we've got... Uh, so many on deck right now. Um, Luke Ryan is is one of our newest authors, um, and he is releasing his. Uh, everybody that's going to be listening to this missed the the pre order, uh, which sold so well um, for the uh, the PB Abate Book Club. Um, you know, we have a partnership with them so that they get their their members get advanced copies of our books uh, at a discounted rate. Um, and you don't have to go to their retreat in Montana or anything for that. Uh, but it's just something cool that, that they're able to do online um, and then get our books early. But uh, Luke wrote this really cool like po- post-apocalyptic uh, novel series. Um, so the first Marauder is, uh, is out uh, officially in November. Um, Luke is, uh, is a very talented writer. Um, the moment we came in contact with him, uh, he and I exchanged uh, poetry books. Um, like our own, he, he had self-published po- like poetry books previously. And the moment, uh, that he and I exchanged, um, just reading his work, um, I knew that he was, he was going to be a, a force to be reckoned with in, uh, in the literary world, um, you know, veteran or not. Um, so we're super stoked to be reading with him. Um, and then we have, you know, the other novella, uh, the only other fiction work that we've, we've released, um, is co-written by three different guys actually, who all, um, all came from different military backgrounds. So that one was also really cool. Um, and offered a general, you know, a, an intimate perspective of, uh, you know, what we call that guy in every platoon. Um, you know, the guy that like you, you would really love, uh, every second of deployment, um, but probably wouldn't wouldn't ask to pick your mom up from the airport. Um, even though he probably would. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a really cool one too. And then, you know, released this like slew of poetry books. Uh, we have two, two volumes out now, um, in love and war and war and after. Uh, and those are our, our first two charitable projects. Um, and so those are all veteran contributors and all, all profits from those books go to uh, charity right now. It's going to Hunter seven foundation. Um, it'll be on a rotating. So when, when we put out the next one, um, the, uh, the rest will be, we'll be going to a different charity, um, which will we'll rotate, you know, with each project. Um, but we have, you know, we have like, uh, several poetry books out. We have those couple of fiction novels. Um, we're working on, uh, our first memoir author right now. Um, but, I mean, all kinds of things, just really cool projects. We have, we have no shortage of it. It it definitely isn't just, just one thing that we're getting, which is always really, really cool. You know, we've got, um, got children's books, books in the shoot. We've got memoirs in the shoot. So, um, really cool. Brilliant. 
and Hunter Seven Project is that the one with the um, the illnesses related to the burn pits? Yeah, I mean burn pits and, and a whole heap of other things. Um, toxic exposure is is a is a nasty thing. We could do a whole whole other podcast on that for sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, Hunter Seven's doing great uh, great work. Um, I was able to do my first field placement with them actually. So um, so I've been been working with them since uh, winter. Right, we'll talk to him about that when we've got time. So, so what yeah. are you seeing in the veteran veteran population as far as you know the the ripple effect of service? We, sorry, so like as it relates to toxic exposure? Yes, yeah, one of the many I mean, ripple effects. Men and women in their late twenties with leukemia that they shouldn't have, um, you know, uh, autoimmune deficiencies, all, all kinds of like terrible health issues that are. Uh, directly related to, you know, overexposure to ammunition and uh, vehicle fumes and chemical exposure. And um, like, and, you know, one of them, like you were talking about is, is burn pits. Um, but it's only, it's only a very small piece. Um, you know, you saw it with a lot of the firefighters and stuff, I'm sure. Um, especially, you know, 9-11 uh, relief workers where it was, it was nuts. Um but like I said, it's only, you know, with, uh, with GWAT guys, it's only a very small piece of it. So, I mean, we're going to see, I think an increase in the next several years, um, the same way that we saw agent orange affect Vietnam veterans. So the benefit is that medical research is, is top notch. Um, Hunter seven is doing a lot of efforts as far as community education, you know, advocating for your own health. Uh, but also doing things that will um, help long term, um, you know, try to trying to push for preventative medicine and trying to push for uh, different legislation that will that will make it easier to get care and things like that. So, yeah, is it, is it being supported at the moment or are they having resistance with a lot of these cases? I mean, it's like anything with legislation, right? Like passing bills and, and things like that. Um, but it's like, you know, at any given time, it's it's a very busy time. But um the work that is being done is definitely being supported by by people um, in high places, which is great. Excellent. All right. Well, then, thank you for that. So, so transitioning back to the the author element, I've always suffered from imposter syndrome, as they say, you know. And when it came to writing a bo- book, that little voice in my head was like, "Well, you can't do that. Only authors do that. You're just a firefighter," yeah. you know. So, talk to me about, you know, maybe there's even some success stories in some of your authors now. That person who you know, has been alive X amount of years and has a story. We all have a story. You know, what what do you say to to someone who's thinking about writing a book but maybe just doesn't have the self belief to actually initiate the uh, the process? I mean, we we can give them tips all day. Um, the the benefit, and this is what employers like about veterans too, is that there there's that like tenacity. There's um, you know that that relentless um, trait in them that will see something start to finish. Um, so if you really want to do something, you will, and they just need the tools. So that's where, that's kind of where like the writer's workshops come in. Um, and so as those start to do better, then we'll be able to bring on uh, more workshop leaders to, to facilitate them and stuff. Um, and just create, you know, better storytellers, better writers, better, you know, even editors, like we can, we can, you know, crank out, um, different courses, um, to, to get people on board with editing and things like that. Um, cause that is an art in itself. If you talk to any, any writer or publisher, they'll tell you that the real, uh, the, you know, the real writing is editing, um, chopping it down and, and tweaking things. 
Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it is at this point, like we really are only taking complete manuscripts. We're not, uh, we're, we're a small operation, um, as big as it is getting, uh, it is, we're still not, uh, not one of the, not one of the big guys. Um, and so we aren't offering, you know, advances to finish a book or anything like that, even if it's great, um, you know, hope it gets done, send it to us when it is. And that's, that's pretty much what it is. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. But so with you being a smaller publishing company, one of the things I heard from people that did, you know, find themselves in, you know, whether it was a large Christian publishing company, but you know, whatever it was, there's a, there's a big fat advance given, but then they have to sell, you know, X amount of books to even see a penny. Obviously some of that advance pays for, you know, all the, the other things as well. Stuff. So yeah. what what is a smaller publishing company like you able to do to you know for the author that maybe may you know may come out you know rather poorly if they go with a very large publishing company? I mean, a lot of times the advance will go to different things that, like in my opinion, the publisher should be covering anyway. You know, like I said, we do you know we do our design in house, we do format, like we we try to handle as much in house as we can. Um, and the benefit of that is that it creates a collaborative relationship with the author. So once we have decided to take on a project, we're able to like, you know, we exchange numbers and we're in contact all the time. Um, we are able to, <laughs> I mean, uh, whoever is doing the artwork will, will be sending the author about a million screenshots a day of, you know, minor tweaks of, you know, you know, when you see those optical illusions where it says like, you know, find the difference between these five pictures. Like that's kind of, kind of what it's like. Um, but it's also the author saying, Oh, I would like this changed slightly. And you're able to do that instead of like one of the big five, uh, coming at you and saying like, well, this is the cover and this is what we've chosen. You may get some say, but definitely not all of it. And in terms of marketing, they may pay for some stuff, um, but you're definitely not going to be a part of it and you have no say as to how it's going to be marketed. We, you know, we do all of that. Um, and again, like it's still on the author, but it's not all on the author. It is not, you know, the author's sole responsibility and like sucks to suck. Sorry, your book didn't sell. It's your fault. Um, that's, that's not how it goes. So, um, that's, that's a cool part of the process too, is to be able to, to really incorporate the author into how they feel like their art should be sold, you know? Now, are you putting books on shelves as well? Cause I mean, obviously that was a downside of Amazon only is not only, yeah. you, you mean, literally can't, you know, they won't, <laughs> they won't accept your book if it was Amazon only, but, um, you know, but because I'm, I'm very curious about the value of the bookstore now. I mean, I think local books, you know, are, are adored by authors, you know, local bookstores, excuse me. Um, but you go into some of the Barnes and Nobles and those these days and they're just not as busy because it's so easy to go online and, and just hit click. So, you know, what, what, where are you putting your books? And then what are you seeing the future of the bookstore, the, the physical, um, brick and mortar? Man, I'll, I'll go to war for bookstores for sure. Um, and so we, uh, in addition to bookstores, uh, we have, we have some other retail, um, things that we're, we're exploring, um, and starting to, to kind of field, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but, uh, bookshop.org is, is where I also always send people. Um, so we have like our own storefront on there. And so you can get our books, all of them through Amazon. 
but if anybody knows like how that works, like we lose a considerable amount. So even with like the charitable books, like I was mentioning those two poetry compilations, um, even those we lose a bunch. And so we don't give as big of a donation, um, bookshop.org. Uh, they obviously take a cut, but they also, um, donate that money into local bookstores, independent bookstores, which is pretty cool. So, um, that's, that's kind of where I was, I was push people, um, is over there. And we have links on our site for that. Um, we also have like other reading lists on there. So if you're just looking for something to read and you've already blown through our catalog, which is like seven books right now. Um, so it'd be pretty easy for you to, to cruise through that and, and move on to the next book. Um, there's all kinds of other reading materials for you. And then, um, you know, that also gives us uh, commission and then we, we can put that big back into, uh, keeping the lights on so we can keep putting books out. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned about exchanging poetry books. Tell me about the books that you've written yourself. Uh, so I have uh, Karmic Purgatory, uh, which is out. Um, it's up for pre-order right now. Um, and that's a collection of, of poetry that I've been working on for a while um, and uh, is near and dear to my heart for sure. Um, it's, uh, it's something I'm, I'm super proud of. Um, so that'll be out, uh, officially October 1st. It's up for pre-order right now with, uh, with a little print we designed, um, that you can get and that's all available on the website. Um, and then it'll be available everywhere, uh, on, uh, on October 1st. Um, Tyler and I also co-authored a book called fact and memory, um, which is a, a co-authored collection of poetry. Um, and really the, the idea behind that, um, was to fine tune our publishing process. So, you know, I feel from, from there, um, you know, as it was the first poetry book, uh, we just wanted to make sure we weren't going to screw anything up with other people's work. Um, and I still think it's probably one of the best things that we've ever put out content aside, like, you know, aesthetically, um, I'm still proud of the writing that's in it, but like aesthetically it's like awesome. Um, you know, and everybody says so it's, uh, so we were, we were super pleased with how it came out and, uh, and continue to be, and it continues to kind of be, uh, something authors who come on will say like, Oh, I really like this about fact and memory. So it actually gave people some, you know, a little bit of a frame of reference, uh, if they don't know exactly, you know, what they, what they're looking for, um, they can, they can compare to other books that we've done and we know exactly what they're talking about. Um, and, uh, and this one as well, um, you know, uh, Tyler and I worked really, really hard on the, the aesthetic of, uh, of karmic purgatory. Um, it's our first fully black, uh, cover, which, uh, which is really cool. Um, it's got a, it's got a, got a beautiful design on the front, uh, if I may say so myself, cause I did it. Um, <laughs> but I was, uh, but I was stoked to do this project. Um, you know, with, aside from like the, the help that Tyler gave me, uh, you know, to do everything regarding the project, um, by myself, um, you know, knowing what we know and doing what we do, um, you know, aside from like the little, little checks, um, that I needed from him, uh, it's, you know, it's all, it's all me and I'm, I'm super proud of it. So excited for everybody to grab a copy on October 1st. If you missed the pre-order that's going, going pretty quick. So beautiful. Yeah. I think by the time this goes out, it'll already be out. So they'll just be able to buy it immediately. 
Um, there you go. Yeah, but I can relate to what you said. I, I used uh, Sebastian's tribe as you know, kind of a, a blueprint for not only the length because I didn't write a big book, so I was kind of all, yeah. you know self conscious, like, oh, I must be shit. I can't write five hundred pages, but he's just so <laughs> lean, you know, with his writing. I'm like, we well, you know, I think this is good. But even just, I wasn't able to do the hardback, but just the the material of his pages, and you know, I mean, it's it's amazing when you look at. Some books, as you said, just aesthetically, whether it's the way it's written, whether it's the title, whether it's, you know, the spacing, whatever it is that you, you start kind of taking those pieces from other books that you love and you kind of create your own version for yours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been definitely been times um, where I've picked up a book because of the way that it looks and it ends up not being very good, but it's still a great looking book. Um, you know, I'm pretty confident that's not the case with any of ours. Um, but uh but I can for sure say that they all look great. Um, and, and they're all, I mean, they're all unique in their own way. You know, we have, we have several, like I said, we have several poetry collections and each of them is different than the last. Uh, they're all, they're all veterans, but they're not all, you know, war poetry. They're, you know, each of them has, has a different, uh, different twist. Um, so. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important thing too, is, you know, one of the elements I see, with the transition process, whether it's a military or first responders, is that people ultimately believe that they're just that profession and they forget they're a human being that put on a uniform, you know? So when you come out the other side, it's like, well, you know, I have to write about the fire service. No, you don't. You could write about farming. You could write about cooking. You could write about anything. You're, you're a person, but the path that you took career-wise makes you unique in the general population. So whether you write entirely about your career or whether you just let it influence your other work, it's still very valuable. And I think a lot of us don't realize how unique our perspective is. Oh, for sure. And I mean, that's, that's the thing too is, and, and we tell people this all the time, you know, um, my enlistment was only five years. That's a small fraction of my life in the grand scheme of things. But did it, did it have a profound influence on, you know, my, my adult years for sure. Um, but it's still, again, you know, there's more to it. Um, so, and that's, that's, what's cool is that we're seeing, you know, people with the same, same perspective, um, bring their, their stories in and, and that's only a small portion of their story, you know, and sometimes it's the whole book. Sometimes that's, that's all it is. And that's great too, because it's a, it's a great portion of the story. Um, but sometimes it's only a sliver, which is awesome too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love to transition some closing questions. Um, we've talked about your book. We talked about some of your, you know, your authors within your um, collective. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, man. Um, you know, David Joy is an author that I got turned on to in the last couple of years. Um, and he he is just killing it. Um, I'm pretty sure one of his books just landed a movie deal. Um, and even if it sucks, I'm going to love it cause, but I don't think it does. I'm pretty sure it had some, some killer, killer actors and actresses in there. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he, he for sure, um, is <laughs> the thing I noticed immediately, um, about his writing. Cause he writes like Appalachian fiction. Um, and, the thing I noticed about his writing immediately was that he, he has the ability to, to develop characters that I felt like I grew up with. 
Um, you know, even though I didn't grow up in the South, the characters that I still felt like I had a connection to, um, because they were so similar to people that I did grow up with. Um, and, uh, his, his ability to paint the picture of a post nine 11 veteran was also something that stuck out to me immediately because usually it's something, uh, that isn't easily achieved by someone who doesn't have military experience. Um, but I think he has taken such time in getting, you know, in connecting and reconnecting with the people that he grew up with and also his newer friends, uh, who are veterans that, that he really has that down, um, which I was very impressed by. Um, even if you're a great writer, it's those tiny little details, you know? Um, and, uh, I've also been, uh, reading, a lot of uh, my partner and I are reading um, some Donald Hall books together. Um, so kind of just trying to pay homage to the the New Hampshire greats. Um, Donald Hall was was one of them. Um, and I always read Tim O'Brien, so I'll I'll always uh, you know recommend that. Most people read the things they carried already, but he's got a whole catalog of other incredible books and he's been nothing but wonderful to us. So, um, yeah, he's, uh, there, there's a whole bunch of books, um, that are out. Uh, like I said, if you go on our, um, on our bookshop.org page, there's actually, which is on our website. Um, there's actually like several different categories of reading lists. So you can find something, uh, if nothing, nothing tickles your fancy, uh, from the first couple things. So, Brilliant. Yeah, Tim O'Brien, I've read, you I know, mean, things they carried. And actually, he'd be a great person again on this podcast, too. I mean, his, his will, uh, excuse me, his Vietnam lens is, you know, absolutely in, imperative. Yeah, we had him on, uh, on ours, uh, over the winter, I believe. And it was just incredible talking to him. He's just such a cool guy, uh, very kind. Um, and he just, just a humble dude too, you know, like, um, as, as an author with the, with the resume that he has, um, he's just, just a super, uh, approachable. So it was really cool talking to him. Yeah. He'd, he'd be a great guest. Beautiful. Well, what about films, any movies or documentaries that you love? Man, I actually stopped watching TV, uh, in the last couple months. Um, I've been watching, uh, turning point, um, like episode by episode and by episode by episode, I mean like a week, uh, between episodes. Um, but I, when I used to watch a lot of TV, uh, I watched the wire and like, I've probably watched, watched the wire several times over. Um, and again, it's cause of the, you know, the film, like the character development and all that. Um, our friend Jericho Demon has worked on some cool movies, uh, one of which was The the Outpost. Um, and he's got some other ones that he's, he's working on. Uh, he's a military technical advisor, um, turned writer, turned, you know, all kinds of things. He's a, he's a jack of all trades after retirement. So, um, you know, I, I just try to keep up with, with movies nowadays. I try to keep up with, uh, with my, what my, what my friends are working on, I guess, um, you know, whether it's documentary or, uh, or cinematic features. So, but yeah, I really actually don't watch TV anymore <laughs> at all. Well, it's hard too. I mean, just as, as I meant to jump in with this a minute ago, um, what I found personally as a, a guy that spent 14 years working shifts, you know, and towards the end, when I started doing this, I had a lot of guests that had books and I try and you know read as many as I can before. Um, I couldn't read. 
And it was that monkey mind. It was that chronic fatigue. It was that hypervigilance, you know, and and I couldn't turn it off. And so, you know, we actually unplugged TV about 10 years ago now. So we just have, you know, Amazon and Netflix and that's it. Um, But it took some time to actually be able to look at a page of, you know, of words and not immediately start thinking about something else and ended up kind of meditation was one of the big things that helped me calm that down. So, you know, is that something that you've seen or, or heard of amongst the people that you're with that you know, the, the art of simply reading has been lost and it's something you've got to refine again? Um, I think, yeah. And I, I think it'll get better and worse uh, with like the rise in popularity in audiobooks. But like, I also, you know, all the way back to the beginning of our conversation when I was working with that that one child at the preschool, um, you know, the way we receive information and the way we, you know, the way we receive it, the way we process it, the way that we convey things, it's all different. So if you can only listen to audiobooks, you are still crushing books. You are still getting information, um, you know, and you're thinking about it and all of that. Also, if you're into the things they carried, I'm pretty sure Brian Cranston, who played Heisenberg on, uh, you know, Walter on Breaking Bad, narrated the audiobook for the things they carried, um, which I would listen to. And I hate audiobooks um, because I can't I can't get information from passive media, you know, um, like if I, I have to write notes um during, during a class. I can't, I'm not like other people where like they can listen to a lecture and retain a whole bunch of information. I have to take meticulous notes. Um, and I'm like that with pretty much everything. Like I'm, I'm pretty visual. Um, I do for, you know, a lot of ideas that I have, I'll, I'll take screenshots of things, um, and put them in a specific folder. I'll uh, like, I have to write it down. Um, so there's, there's lots of things that I'm, I'm not, uh, not able to, uh, receive the same way as other people. And like, that's not wrong. It's just like, everybody's different. Everybody's brains work different. Um, and sometimes it's something you can alter if you're that interested. Like you were saying, meditation helps you focus. Sometimes it's something you can change if you want to change it. I'm sure that you can. Um, but for me, like that passive media, I can't do it. So I have, I have to read a book and I like beat the shit out of my books and write in them and, um, you know, put you know, all kinds of things in them. So, um, you know, just figure out what is good for you. Uh, close reading is another thing that people have kind of asked us about, um, in terms of like, you know, looking at a paragraph and then breaking it down word by word, you know, like reinspecting sentences and separating it and pulling it back together, um, and really investigating what, what that actually means. Um, that's another skill set in itself. So, yeah, it's interesting. With with the audiobooks, I I have a bunch and I do listen to them because if I got to drive, my wife's four hours away in medical school, so it's a great time to to digest if I don't have a time to read. But with this format, this is how I digest information. I love conversation, but I know you know some great people out there that have podcasts that monologue can't can't stand yeah. it, can't stand it. Yeah, you know, so nope. it just doesn't work. But the moment two people are having a discussion, it draws me in completely. And I'll remember, you know, conversation. I mean, the one that you were on, you know, I remember all of that. And that was post jujitsu when I was getting choked out <laughs> for an hour. So <laughs> clearly, you know, it's uh, it's it's that's the medium that really works for me. The book I love in the morning when I can get my mind calm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the audio book for me, I just I just start thinking about other stuff. So they just kind of drone in the background. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, then the next closing question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest 
to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of someone who's not him, uh, just because I feel like I should. But um, Tyler, the other half of, of Dead Reckoning Collective, uh, is, is for sure uh, the person that that I, I keep falling back to. Um, and not only because uh, he's you know my best friend, not only because he is my partner in crime, uh, but also because he, you know, based on the question that you just asked, um, he has been, he's a firefighter, uh, and he has done so much work within his organization and his industry, um, that he will, he will never demand credit for, you know, um, he's just a stud, like he's just one of those dudes. Uh, but even down to, the administrative things and, you know, union issues and stuff like that. Like he just, he, he is a boy's boy. Like he is, he is all about, uh, making sure his people are taken care of. And he, he really does that very, very well. So, um, he is an inspiration to me and others for sure in ways that go way, way, way beyond writing. Um, I mean, writing policy, I guess, but, um, but I mean, you know, he's he's a stud like, you know, in the gym, in his bunker coat, uh, as well as, um, you know, in the boardroom and stuff like that. And, you know, behind an email account. So he's uh, he's just just amazing. Um, so as far as talking to first responders and uh, and getting that perspective, you know, from from the military and uh, and first responder uh, side of things, he's he's for sure the, the guy I would talk to. Brilliant. Let's make that happen then. He sounds the perfect person. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. He probably should have come on instead of me. He says way smarter stuff sometimes, but well, I can just delete this and we can start again. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> My dog barked at like 30 minutes. So we'll, we'll just do it. <laughs> no, it's been a great conversation. Um, all right. The last For question sure. before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Um, I right now I work out outside of my truck. Um, I had I had a great garage gym before I moved, um, and I, I switched over to just like minimalist stuff with dumbbells and kettlebells um, in a sandbag. So, um, so I'm doing that, um, and I write and I read and I read things that are not. Uh, not always related to military experience or related to like our industry or my industry or anything like that. I just try to step away for a minute um, and just spend time with friends and family and just, you know, try to try to prioritize that time and be present um, in those moments. Beautiful. Yeah. That's something I've struggled with because obviously a lot of people coming on here have got biographies. So I'm trying to, you know, get into the fiction world and, and the classics and anything that's just completely, completely detached. Otherwise you end up kind of getting sucked down that. And you just get the same kind of stories. And, and even though they're incredibly well written, you know, you, you kind of crave something different. Yeah. Tim O'Brien was definitely the, the guy who sold me. And then David Joy was definitely the guy who reignited my love for fiction. But like Tim O'Brien um, and his perspective on why fiction is more true than most true stories, um, you know, he was the one who sold me on that that whole perspective. So if you haven't uh, checked out his his quotes on that, I would recommend I'll send you some stuff. Yeah, please do, because in my next book, I've got a concept for a fiction this time. The other one was, you know, kind of, like I said, biography 
slash how not to die. Okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but this one, you know, I think you can story tell with a lot more freedom if you throw some, some fictional elements and even though it may be based on things that you've seen and done. Yeah. All right. Well, then people listening, where can they find you online? And then let's make sure they know where the collective's website is as well. Yeah. So, um, our, our Instagram is uh, dead reckoning collective. Um, and our website is dead reckoning Um, we're as far as social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter as well. Um, and Pinterest, but we're most active on, uh, on Instagram. Um, by far and all, all of our books, uh, you can find on Amazon and bookshop.org, but you can also, um, you can also order them all on our website. And like I said before, you know, that means more money for us, more money for the author and less money for Jeff Bezos. So brilliant. Well, just one more thing that we talked about at the beginning. I want to make sure we get to as well. One of the most liberating things when I started, this was a removal of filters. You know, there were, there when I've retired out of the fire service, especially, I could speak freely for the men and women in our professions. And rather than have to pander to a news outlet, a magazine, whatever, you know, I created my own, I created a platform that we're able to have these conversations and we say what we say. Um, yeah. You know, I'm sure there's an element of that in publishing as well. And you touched on the 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 potential danger of getting to a point where there is a cancel culture where books are removed from libraries what we've seen you know the um i forget is it the seuss books that were removed recently um yeah so so talk to me through through your eyes now just about that concept because we almost missed it well it's i mean it's difficult um to say, you know, what, what should be there and what shouldn't, um, and the way that we raise our, our kids. Um, but I think that we should be emphasizing the conversation that we're having with our kids versus the removal of, you know, different materials. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have any worries about, or you shouldn't have as many worries, uh, about what, your child is going to turn into if you have such close contact with them, if you are, you know, if you are talking them through everything. Um, so, you know, one of the, one of the things you had brought up was, um, like war is a racket. Uh, you know, we have this critical classic series dropping, um, and we're, where we're putting out, uh, books from the past. Um, and one of them is war is a racket and it's, uh, it, it is for sure controversial. You know, it's written by major general Smedley Butler, um, who testified before Congress and, uh, and essentially called out the military industrial complex before anyone was even calling it the military industrial complex. Um, so regardless of how you feel on it, there, there is validity to, you know, his words. Um, and anybody who has been, you know, anywhere near war can, can attest to that. Um, so, but I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing when you're, is it uncomfortable for sure? Um, but it's, it is an important part of history. Um, and just because it makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that it should go away. Um, you know, especially if it's not, um, if it's not inspiring, you know, hate and, and things like that. Um, so it's uh, Tyler, Tyler will go off on a T I'm going to let, I'm going to save it. I'll let him go off on, on cancel culture and, uh, Actually, you'll probably have to cut that because then he'll he'll just go off for the rest of the episode. But, <laughs> we have all the um, time in the world. Yeah, man. Yeah, he um, 
he's pretty passionate about it, but, uh, but we're on the same page in that, you know, um, if you've ever been to like the Holocaust museum in DC or, or any of those other museums where, where, uh, you know, entire, um, civilizations were attempted, you know, to be destroyed, um, literature is something that is at, you know, is targeted. Um, you know, you look at Afghanistan, like, and, and the, the limitations on, on press and, uh, free speech literature is a, is a target always has a target on it with, with people who don't, you know, don't want you to think, don't want you to critically analyze things. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty passionate about, uh, about all of that. The critical classics that, that first one comes out really swinging, but we've got some, some other pretty fun ones. Um, and, and it's just our way of, uh, we've got some heavy way coming out, um, and, and some other stuff. Um, and it's just our way of like reintroducing some, some literature into the wild, uh, per se. So, yeah, but it's funny you mentioned the Holocaust. I just went to, um, England, took my little boy back to see my family after three years, we were finally able to travel. Um, and, uh, we went to the Imperial War Museum in London and they have an entire, uh, Holocaust, you know, exhibit now. Um, and they don't pull any punches. It is absolutely fucking horrific. But that's the point, you know. So when we're pulling down statues, oh, this person was a slave owner. Good. Leave that fucking thing up there to remind us what a piece of shit he was. Don't take it down and eradicate the memory because you're actually aiding that cause. So like you said, you know, don't, don't glamorize. Don't put a picture of Hitler and then, you know, leave flowers around it because he was a hero. Of course not. He was an absolute turd. But if you, if you remove, you know, history, I mean, we're bad enough for, you know, allowing history to repeat itself as it is. If we remove the evidence of it, now you're really allowing yourself to repeat it. So I agree completely. That area of council culture is so dangerous. We, we need those glaring reminders of all the horrific things that our ancestors have done. It's very important. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and, you know, that when all that was going on, uh, most frequently, uh, with like the statues and stuff like that, um, I'm not like, I was like, cool. It's a statue. Like who gives a fuck? Um, but I also looked at it as a very temporary solution, um, you know, to a, to a very large problem when you were talking about, um, systemic racism Are are you actually going to accomplish anything by, by knocking over a statue? Um, you know, there are, there are much, much bigger things at stake. Um, so like I said, I, I'm, I'm indifferent to the, the actual object. Um, but in terms of like, changing bigger things you know because then that's all all the people see yeah and symbolism. there there are much much yeah and i mean some symbolism is real symbolism is is important symbolism is effective in in struggles like this um but uh but there are definitely you know bigger bigger fish to fry mm-hmm. absolutely well, Keith, I just want to say thank you so much it's been such a great conversation we've gone all over the place um but you know again People, when they come on here, of whatever background, their perspective is so important, especially when you're boots in the ground. So, you know, as you said, you had a, a unique lens when it came to Iraq, when it came to, you know, being deployed in um, Italy and what you saw with the returning veterans and then, you know, what you're doing with the veteran population now. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, James.